Good morning. My name is Matt Howell. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our Redeemer online virtual experience. I hope you had a great Christmas with uh, your family and whoever you were choosing to spend your, your you know, the holidays with. And um, I know that this season in particular can be challenging in general, but especially challenging when you throw in safer at home orders and uh, however you find yourself joining us this morning, if you're filled with excitement and rest, if you're, if you're worn out and you need a break from the people that you're safer at home with, um, however you find yourself this morning, we just want to welcome you. Welcome to Redeemer. Well, what is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church. Even though we're online these days, we're still a church, and that means that we're a community of people, and we are trying to learn how to love God and to love our neighbor. And the way that we do that is we get together every week so that we can worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we might rest in his great love for us. And then we try to get together throughout the week over Zoom or over FaceTime or over phone calls so that we might remind one another of his great love for us. And as we rest and as we remind, we delight to spread throughout Midtown in service so that we can reflect his great love for us. We dream of seeing Memphis flourishing anew through the redemptive love of Jesus. So that's who we are. We're a community of people. We're trying to learn how to love God and love our neighbor as we rest, remind, and reflect. And what we've been doing over the Advent season and now in kind of the Christmas season, we've been looking at all the different, you know, a few different places in the Bible where it explains why Jesus came in the incarnation. And uh, we've seen that Jesus came to preach. He came to call. He came to serve. He came to seek. He came to give. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus came came to save. He came to save. Two questions in response to that. What in the world does that mean? And what in the world does that matter? So that's what I want to try to answer with you in the brief time that we have this morning. What does that mean that Jesus came to save and what does it matter? And just to give a, a quick shout out, I got some help from this for, uh, from one of my friends named Brent Webster. So thanks Brent for the help and let's go. What does that mean? Jesus came to save. Well, that statement can cause offense to some people because it assumes that you needed saving in the first place. And that's a, that's a jarring thing to hear. In fact, Regina Spector, who's a, a musician, as you might know, in one of her songs, she has a lyric that goes, quote, I'm the hero of this story. I don't need to be saved. I'm the hero of the story. I don't need to be saved. In fact, I read an article this week titled, I don't need to be saved. If I did, I'd save myself. To be told that you need to be saved, it sounds so patronizing, so condescending. In fact, then when you throw in the language of, uh, that, that Jesus, or that, that Paul says here about Jesus, that he came to save sinners, it's just easy to kind of check out at this point to be like, okay, we're just dealing with old school fundamentalism at this point. Jesus came to save sinners. Being saved is not a cool concept. Uh, sin is not a cool word. It is a word that uh, feels cringy to us. Uh, it feels antiquated. It feels dangerous. But here's the deal. You cannot understand God. You cannot understand the world that you live in. And you cannot understand yourself unless you begin to wrap your mind around this concept that the Bible calls sin. Let, let me explain why. The movie uh, Silence of the Lambs. 
as you remember, old school classic movie, Jodie Foster plays a detective named Clarice Starling. She's talking to Hannibal Lecter, who is this notorious cannibalistic serial killer, and she's interviewing him, and she's trying to wrap, she's trying to figure him out. Why are you the way that you are? And she asks him, what happened to you? And he looks at her, and here's what he says. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened I can't be reduced to a set of influences. You have given up on good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. Nothing is now anybody's fault. Look at me. Can't you stand to say I'm evil? He makes a fascinating point. I think everybody looks out at the world and they know something is wrong with the world at a deeper level than we want to give it credit for. Racism feels like it's a deeper evil than just uh, ignorance. Human trafficking feels like it's a deeper evil than just greed and exploitation. The problem is, is that we, we have lost the language to talk about what the deeper thing actually is. We've lost the vocabulary, but Christianity comes along and it gives us a word, and the word is sin. Uh, Kathleen Norris, in her spiritual memoir, she says this, quote, comprehensible, sensible sin is one of the unexpected gifts I have found in Christianity. It began to answer a question for me that the human potential movement of the late 20th century never seemed to address, and that's this. If I'm okay, and you're okay, and our friends, nice people like us are okay, then why is the world definitely not okay? Blaming others wouldn't do. Only when I began to see the world's ills mirrored in myself that I began to find an answer. Only as I began to address that uncomfortable word, sin, did I see that I was not being handed a load of needless guilt so much as a useful tool for confronting the negative side of human behavior. Here's what she's saying. She's saying no other explanation for why the world is the way that it is gave me as much as that word sin. Okay, now what is that word sin? Sin is basically this, at its root level, sin is you substituting yourself for God. That's what sin is. It's this impulse in us where we want to assume control of our life. So for example, God says that he wants us to meet the needs of our neighbors with the same level of energy and creativity that we go about meeting our own needs. And our instinct to that is, yeah, I'm not interested in doing that. I wanna just take care of my needs. You know, God tells us to sacrificially pour ourselves out for the needs of the poor. And we say, yeah, I like that idea as a concept, and so I'll throw some, you know, pennies to the poor, but I, I'm not interested in sacrificially pouring myself out for them. Um, God says, I only want you to have sex with the person that you're married to. And we say, yeah, definitely not. That feels way too restrictive. But that's the thing. It's that impulse. We all have this built-in mechanism that wants to assume control of our lives. God, don't tell me what to do. This is my life. I want to do whatever I want to do. What we're doing is we're substituting ourselves 
for God. And it's that impulse, that's why relationships are broken. That's why neighborhoods are blighted. That's why certain schools are underfunded. That's why we're all carrying around boatloads of shame. This is the bad news. The bad news is, is that instinct is so deeply hardwired in us, inside of all of us, that we cannot change ourselves. We, we, we are, we are uh, hopeless in and of ourselves. Uh, we aren't simply in need of moral improvement and some more education and some character development. We are trapped inside of this instinct and we are in need of rescue. Uh, to put some uh, images to this, back in 1989, there was an earthquake in Armenia that was an 8.2 on the Richter scale. You may remember this. For, for four minutes after the shaking was ended, the final death toll was 30,000 people. Unbelievable. And I heard this story of this father uh, that, that ran to school where his son was attending. And when he shows up to where the school was, this is after the earthquake, there was no school. It was just rubble. And he knew that his kid's classroom was in kind of the back right corner. And so he, he runs to this back right-hand corner and he starts uh, removing pieces of rubble, digging, trying to find his son that he knows is buried somewhere underneath. And people are screaming at him. They're, they're trying to get him to stop. They're saying, you know, they're dead. You can't help them. Uh, just go home. There's nothing that you can do. The fire chief tried to pull him off. Explosions were going off. Fire was going off in the background. That's the picture that the Bible gives us. It's bleak, it's offensive, but the Bible tells us because of this instinct in us, we're all buried under the rubble of our own sinfulness, of our own instincts, of our own twisted desires, and we can't get out from underneath it. We're stuck, we're dying. We can't change ourselves no matter how hard we want to. We're enslaved to our own narcissism. Um, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, our own obsession with ourselves, our, our fragile ego of constantly comparing ourselves to other people, our um, incessant need for constant affirmation and approval, um, our, our, our bent away from God and goodness and our bent towards evil and our own self-destruction this is, why, this is why even at a very kind of basic level, we want to do good and we want to lose weight and we want to sleep better and we want to read more and we just can't. We can't get over this instinct inside of us that, that is bent towards our own self-destruction. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Verse 15, Jesus came to save sinners. If you go back to Armenia, back to this horrible picture. That dad kept digging and he would not quit. He dug for eight straight hours. Then when he couldn't find anything, he kept going. 12 hours passed, 24 hours passed, 36 hours passed. And then at the 38th hour of non-stop digging, he pulls back this piece of rubble and he sees an arm with the shirt on of it that on it that was the same shirt that he had put his child in that morning when he sent him to school and he had found his son Armand was his name and he screams Armand Armand and his son very weakly looks up at him in the midst of all of this rubble and here's what he says to him I knew that you would come you promised and I told the other kids that you would get us out that's the picture 
the picture is, is that I am trapped and without hope and you came to save me because you promised that you would. That's why Jesus came to save us from ourselves. And you know how he did it? He did it by acting as our substitute. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for us. And so he steps in and he bears the weight of the punishment that you and I deserve. This is why Paul says in verse 16 that he received mercy. Mercy is getting something that you completely did not deserve. What Paul did deserve was God's wrath and his punishment for his own sin. But instead, Paul received mercy because Jesus took all of that in his place. He takes our place. A lot of people think that Jesus came simply to just teach us um, moral and spiritual lessons. Things that we might need. Here's some, here's some things, cool things that you should believe. Here's some rights and some rules. And if you obey them enough, then you can maybe work your way up to God. But Jesus did not come simply as a teacher. He came on a search and rescue mission. If somebody is drowning in the water and they are flailing, they're gasping for, the, for air and they're about to go under, you don't throw them a swimming manual. You don't throw them a textbook on how they can swim better. If people really are helpless and trapped and lost, you don't throw them spiritual teaching. You jump into the pool and you pull them out and you rescue them. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to save us, to pull us out of the water when we couldn't save ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was this German pastor and this uh, uh, dissident of the Nazis. He was arrested for plotting to kill Hitler and he was sentenced to death. And in fact, he spent his last Christmas in a prison outside of Berlin. And he at that point said that being in prison was the perfect place to celebrate Christmas. And here's why. He says, it's because your cell is locked from the outside. You can't open it and let yourself out. Someone needs to come in from the outside and set you free. And that's what Christmas is. You can't save yourself. But the good news is, is that Jesus came to do it. He came to set us free. He came to save sinners. So that leads us to our second question. Why does that matter? If that's what it means, why does that matter? And really there's, I mean, we could kind of tease out implications of this for the rest of our lives, but Paul gives us two in this passage that I want to draw our attention to really briefly. The first implication is, is this transforms how you see yourself. If Jesus came to save sinners, it transforms how you see yourself. And then the second implication is that it, it transforms how you see God. How does this transform how you see yourself? Well, notice how Paul talks about himself. Verse 15, he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He's saying, if you line up all the sinners in the world, I am at the top of the list. I'm the biggest sinner that I know. Now, is Paul just feeling exceptionally guilty here? Is, does he just have a low self-esteem kind of issue here? No. He knows his own story and he is being honest about it. Before Paul started following Jesus, Paul's, um, Paul, Paul tried to exterminate Christians. 
he was essentially a radical religious terrorist. Uh, he burned with, with religious self-righteousness. He loved being right. He was full of resentment and jealousy and anger and pride. The worst kind of person in the world is someone who is utterly wicked, but they have convinced themselves that they are good because they are religious. And that's who Paul was. His story was that he was a ugly, wicked person who thought that he was good because he was religious. And Jesus comes crashing into his life like a wrecking ball, turns up everything upside down with his own grace. And here's what Paul says, verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus chose to save me, the chief of sinners, so that my life might be an example of the patience of his patience and of his grace. My, my whole life is now a display of his mercy. My whole story is exhibit A of God's grace for someone who is an utter train wreck. And here's his point. His point is, if God can rescue someone like me, this means that nobody is a lost cause. Nobody is just a foregone conclusion. Nobody is beyond hope. You are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace and you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. But I want you to notice this. To be rescued by Jesus does not mean that you are now um, on a moral high ground above everybody else. He doesn't say Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was the foremost. Now he's speaking in the present tense. He is saying, of whom I am the foremost. See, our, our deep instinct is to always assume that the problem with the world is those people out there over there. Our instinct is always to divide up the world and say, they're the problem. Progressives do this with conservatives. Conservatives do this with progressives. The rich do this with the poor. The poor do this with the rich. But when you have encountered the saving grace of Jesus, your whole paradigm shifts. You begin to start to think about yourself and the world. Okay, the problem is not out there. The problem is right here. I'm the problem. David Brooks had this fascinating article a couple of years ago where he was writing in response to the, the horrible sexual abuse scandal at Penn State. The name of the article was called, Let's All Feel Superior. He condemns the evil that was done at Penn State, but he also critiques the instinct in people's response to that horrible evil. Because everybody was asking, okay, how could those people let that happen? How could they let that happen? And he makes this case that that assumption that if I had been there, I would have done a lot better needs to really be questioned. And he gives all of these examples in history. He talks, you know, he gives the example of the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, even, you know, street beatings here in America to show that there's this horrible pattern. When atrocities go down, ordinary people don't get involved. In fact, psychologists have a, uh, a term for this called the bystander effect. And so here's what he writes, quote, he says, people are really good at self-deception. We inflate our own virtues and predict that we will behave more nobly than we actually do. 
When it comes time to make a decision, our thoughts are dominated by thoughts of how we want to behave while all thoughts of how we should behave disappear. Listen to this. He says, in centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. Isn't that fascinating? He even uses that word. This is in the New York Times. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. Life was seen as an inner struggle against the selfish forces inside. But now we live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. So when something atrocious happens commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? The proper question is, how can we ourselves overcome our natural tendency to evade and self-deceive? But it's a question this society has a hard time asking because the most seductive evasion is the one that leads us to deny the underside of our own nature. Now, I know that's a lot, but here's what he just said. We're all sinners. Evil is not just out there. It's in here. People, most people don't see the evil within ourselves and we're unwilling to do so. But when you encounter the saving grace of Jesus, what that does is it opens up your eyes to yourself. And so you can say about yourself what Paul said about himself, I'm the foremost of sinners. You begin to see your whole life as, as, a, as an exhibit A of undeserved mercy. Now, You may be thinking to yourself, okay, that sounds horribly depressing. Why would anybody want to walk around all day thinking of how horrible they are and the foremost of all sinners? That just sounds like it's going to be a horribly sad life. Well, here's the last thing. The saving grace of Jesus doesn't just transform how you see yourself. It transforms how you see God. And here's the key. Look at verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Right in the middle of this thought, Paul just explodes with praise and gratitude. This is not the response of a depressed man. This is the response of a man that was locked in the dungeon of his own sin and was rescued and liberated by pure grace. He is in touch with mercy. When you know that you have a great need for a savior and you know that you have a great savior for your need, those two things form like a spiritual chemical reaction and it produces praise and gratitude and wonder and joy. What in the world could possibly create an identity in somebody where you are utterly humbled and simultaneously joyful The only thing that can do it is the saving grace of Jesus. The good news is, this is why Jesus came. To save sinners like you and like me. And that's really good news. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would transform how we see ourselves and transform how we see you. Transform how we see others. I pray that... that, the saving grace of Jesus, unwarranted, unmerited mercy poured out for people 
that, are, that have these twisted, selfish instincts, I pray that that would so overwhelm us that we would be humbled into the dust and yet at the same time lifted up to the stars knowing that you love people like us, people that are needy, broken, messy, desperate, walking around contradictions. And yet that does not deter your love for us, but you have come after people like us to save and to rescue us. I pray that that would overwhelm us. Give us us gratitude and wonder and praise in response, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.